We're going to pick up this episode with some of the back and forth around education, uh, and we're going to start at 403C. Does it look to you, too, as though our argument concerning music has reached an end? I said, at least it's ended where it ought to end. Surely musical matters should end in love matters that concern the fair. I'm in accord, he said. Now, after music, the youths must be trained in gymnastic, of course. In this, too, they must then receive a precise training from childhood throughout life. And it, and it, it would, I believe, be something like this. And you consider it, too. It doesn't look to me as though it's a sound body that by its virtue makes the soul good. But the opposite, a good soul by its own virtue makes the body as good as it can be. How does it look to you? It looks that way to me too. If we gave adequate care to the intellect and turned over to it the concern for the precise details about the body, while we, so as not to talk too much, show the way only to the models, would we be doing the right thing? Most certainly. Now, we said that they must keep away from drunkenness. Surely it's more permissible for anyone other than a guardian to be drunk and not to know where on earth he is. It's ridiculous if the guardian needs a guardian. Now, what about food? For the men are champions in the greatest contest, aren't they? Yes. Then, would the habit of the ordinary athletes be proper for them? Perhaps. But, I said, this is a sort of sleepy habit and not a very steady one so far as health is concerned. Or, don't you see that they sleep their life away? If they depart a bit from their fixed way of life, these athletes get very critically ill. I do see that. There is need, then, I said, for a subtler exercise for those combatants in war, since they must be sleepless like hounds, see and hear as sharply as possible, and in their campaigns undergo many changes of water, food, the sun's heat, winds without being too highly tuned for steadiness and health. It looks like it to me. Would the best gymnastic be a kin of the simple music we were describing a little while ago? How do you mean? A simple and decent gymnastic, of course, especially in matters of form. How would it be? From Homer, too. I said, one could learn things very much of this sort. For you know that during a campaign at the Feast of the Heroes, he doesn't feast them on fish, that although they are by the Sea of the Hellespont, nor on boiled meats, but only roasted, which would be especially easy for soldiers to come by. For, so to speak, everywhere it's easier to come by the use of fire alone than to carry pots around. Quite so. Nor does Homer, I believe, Ever make mention of sweets? Don't even the other athletes know that if a body is going to be in good shape, it must keep away from everything of the sort? Yes, he said. And they are right in knowing it and keeping away. My friend, you don't seem to recommend a Syracusan table and Sicilian refinement of cooking if, if you think this is right. No, I think not. Then you also blame the Corinthian girls being the mistress of men who are going to have good bodies. That's entirely certain. And the reputed joys of attic cakes? Necessarily. In likening such food and such a way of life as whole to melodies and songs written in the panharmonic mode and with all rhythms, we would make a correct likeness, I suppose. Of course. Just as refinement there gave birth to licentiousness, does it give birth to illness here? And just as simplicity in music produced moderation in soul, does it in gymnastic produce health in bodies? So we've had the second of the educational pillars that Socrates is putting forth. Mr. Courage and I both believe that uh, Socrates is being silly in using Homer as a warrant. And I think silliest when he's talking about the diet 
of the combatants. So keep that in mind as you're reading all the way through 405A. I'd like to pick up um, just a little bit uh, further. Uh, so this is going to be as he looks over what happened in Troy and Patroclus. So I'm starting at 406A. Such, I said, Socrates, as didn't exist in the time of Asclepius, as I suppose. I infer this from the fact that at Troy, his sons didn't blame the woman who gave the wounded Eurypylus uh, Primenian wine to drink, with a great deal of barley and grated cheese sprinkled on it. And it's just these that are thought to be inflammatory, nor did they criticize Patroclus, who was healing. But for all that, he said, the drink is certainly strange for one in that condition. No, it isn't, I said. If only you recognize that this current art of medicine, which is an education in disease, was not used by the Asclepiads of former times, or so they say, until Herodicus came on the scene. He was a gymnastic master and became sickly, so he mixed gymnastic with medicine, and he first and foremost worried himself to death, then many others afterwards. In what way? He drew out his death, I said. Attending the mortal disease, he wasn't able to cure it. I suppose, and spent his whole life treating it with no leisure for anything else, mightily distressed if he departed a bit from his accustomed regiment. So, finding it hard to die, thanks to his wisdom, he came to an old age. Well, he said, that was a fine prize he won for his art. Such as is fitting, I said, for one who didn't know that it wasn't from ignorance or inexperience in this form of medicine that Asclepius didn't reveal it to his offspring, but rather because he knew that for all men obedient to good laws a certain job has been assigned to each in the city at which he is compelled to work, and no one has the leisure to be sick throughout life and treat himself. It's laughable that we recognize this for the craftsman while for the rich and reputed happy we don't. How's that, he said. A carpenter, I said, when he's sick, thinks fit to drink some medicine from the doctor and vomit up his disease and have it purged out from below or submit to burning and cutting to be rid of it. If someone prescribes a lengthy regimen for him, putting bandages around his head and what goes with them, he soon says that he has no leisure to be sick, nor is a life thus spent, paying attention to a disease while neglecting the work at hand or of any profit. And with that, he says goodbye to such a doctor and returns to his accustomed regimen, regaining his health. He lives minding his own business. If his body is inadequate to bearing up under it, he dies and is rid of his troubles. For this kind of man, at least, he said, it's not proper to use medicine in this way. Is it? I said, because he has a definite job, and if he couldn't do it, it, wouldn't be, it would be of no profit to go on living? Plainly, he said. So that takes us all the way up to 407A. I just want to highlight that we have entered the realm of comedy uh, in the way this... Uh, this uh, discourse is proceeding. Socrates is really leaning into the absurd, um, and he's bringing Homer and Pindar, uh, Hesiod with him, uh, and misnaming what goes on with Asclepius. So that's going to go on for a little bit, and I want to just uh, move to 409, 408E. Doctors. I said, would prove cleverest if, beginning in childhood, in addition to learning of the art, they should be familiar with very many and very bad bodies, and should themselves suffer all diseases and not be quite healthy by nature. For I don't suppose they care for a body with a body, in that case it wouldn't be possible for the bodies themselves ever to be or to have been bad, but for a body with a soul, and it's not possible for a soul to have been, and to be, bad, and to care for anything well. Correct, he said. A judge... 
on the other hand, my friend, rules a soul with a soul. And it's not possible for it to have been reared and been familiar with bad souls from youth on, and to have gone through the list of all unjust deeds and to have committed them itself, so as to be sharp at inferring from itself the unjust deeds of others like diseases in the body. Rather, it must have been inexperienced and untainted by bad dispositions when it was young, if, as a fine and good soul, it's going to make healthy judgments about what is just. This is exactly why decent men, when they are young, look as though they were innocents and easily deceived by unjust men, because they have in themselves no patterns of affections similar to those of bad men. So this naivete uh, argument at uh, 409a is one you want to uh, just keep track of, as it will pop up again later. Remember, we've been talking about what, it, what makes for justice and, and what should we desire. Well, <clears throat> naivete is going to definitely be a nice sort of um, set of blinders that you could put on youth if you wanted them to stay on the track. The hard part is it is unsustainable and really unrealistic. So there is something here that seems tongue-in-cheek as this argument is developing around the judge. So keep track of that. This will move on for a little bit longer. Uh, let's just pick up at 409b, uh, part 2. That, you see, is why, I said, the good judge must not be young but old, a late learner of what injustice is. He must not have become aware of it as kindred, dwelling in his own soul. Rather, having studied it as something alien in alien souls over a long time, he's become thoroughly aware of how it is naturally bad, having made use of knowledge, not his own personal experience. Well, I said, a judge who's like that seems to be the most noble. And good, too, I said, which is what you ask. The man who has a good soul is good. That clever and suspicious man, the one who has himself done many, un the one who has himself done many unjust things and supposes he's a master criminal and wise, looks clever because he's on his guard when he keeps company with his likes, taking his bearings by the patterns within himself. But when he is in contact with good men who are older, he now looks stupid, distrustful, out of season, ignorant of a healthy disposition because he does not possess a pattern for such a man. But since he meets bad men more often than good ones, he seems to be rather more wise than unlearned, both to himself and to others. That is, he said, quite certainly true. Then it's not in such a man that the good and wise judge must be looked for, but in the former, I said. For badness would never know virtue and itself, while virtue is an educated nature, uh, while virtue in an educated nature will in time gain a knowledge of both itself and badness simultaneously. This man, in my opinion, and not the bad one, becomes wise. And I share your opinion, he said. Will you set down a law in the city providing as well for an art of medicine such as we described along with such an art of judging, which will care for those of your citizens who have good natures in body and soul? While as for those who haven't, they'll let die the ones whose bodies are such and the ones whose souls have bad natures and are incurable, they themselves will kill? Now that version of the, 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 the state that kills the state that is uh, down with euthanasia has to be leaning into the comic. And I just want to leave this episode at that, that you should be reading each of these parts of book three with a great, no, let's call it a bucket of sea salt. 
uh, as you're working your way through.